Uh, I'm not sure what possessed me when I um, agreed to talk about such three large and heavy topics, um, but I will hopefully stumble my way through it. Um, I said that I would talk about uh, economics and happiness and climate change, each of which could be um, talked about endlessly as a solo topic. And what I'll do is kind of point to various aspects of these three things and then try and connect them as much as possible, um, because that's the overall objective, is to make sense of these things together. So economics. Um, I teach in a business school. I wasn't trained in business. Uh, I don't have a business education. I was brought in originally to teach as an interface between the arts and economics and business. So to combine issues of psychology, sociology, anthropology, media studies, um, with business perspectives and particularly under a framework of ethics and social justice. And I've been doing that for way too long, it seems. Um, <clears throat> but let me start with economics. Uh, economics, the dismal science, as many people would refer to it, um, and sometimes for good reason and sometimes for less good reason. Um, economics is in many ways our sort of predominant social ideology, I would argue. It's a kind of system of belief and values that is inordinately powerful in shaping our lives and directing where we go, particularly in terms of the future. And economics, in a sense, is endlessly complex. You know, you've all seen those economic formulae. You've heard people from the treasury wax lyrical and no doubt found your mind silting in despair as they did so. Um, but underneath it all, it's actually very simple and straightforward. You can think of economics, particularly in a free market context, as being um, a sort of process that aims to create well-being or satisfaction or indeed happiness. Um, when we think of things like cost-benefit analyses, for example, it's all aimed about increasing pleasure and decreasing pain. And essential economic concepts like utility, if you break it down into its basic definition, we're talking about units of happiness, which are what utils are. And an economy is seen as being essentially a happiness-generating machine for reasons which go back to the Enlightenment, describing and articulating the dynamics of a market system and creating moral justification for it. The idea of the market, um, originally sort of conceptualized and articulated by Adam Smith, uh, the so-called father of economics, when he was trying to describe how we as societies could progress after an age of religious control. How are we going to conduct our affairs? How do we know the difference between good and bad, etc.? And the middle piece of his work was the wealth of nations. Only one thing um, is typically remembered from that by most people, and that is the idea that markets should be liberated and freed from 
heavy-handed control, originally religious control, but also government control. It's not actually what Adam Smith was saying, but his beliefs and complex philosophy have been reduced to a sort of bumper sticker mentality. For most people, it's that you don't get your bread from the baker and your beer from the brewer and your meat from the butcher because they care about you. You get it because of their self-interest. That's all that most people remember about Adam Smith. Adam Smith's point in talking about that was really to place it in a larger social context of ethics because he was primarily known as an ethical philosopher. In his time, he was not known as an economist. That's not what he was famous for. He was famous as a moral philosopher, and his book on moral sentiments was what made him famous. And The Moral Sentiments, which was his first book, was an articulation of an idea which basically was around human-heartedness and a claim that we as a species have got sympathy embedded in our wiring. <clears throat> and as sympathetic creatures, he argued, we could liberate economy a bit more. He never argued for laissez-faire economics. He never used the term laissez-faire economics. But he argued that religious control of markets had been too strict and that society could thrive if markets were liberated. The reason they produce happiness and the reason why markets are seen theoretically as being so good for us is that they involve free engagement. So when we go with our money in hand, to buy a meal, to buy a drink, to buy a new shirt, to buy a new car, to buy whatever. We engage in a free exchange, and when we engage in that free exchange, both parties in that exchange benefit. So the idea that economic exchange is beneficial to all parties involved in the exchange is a tempting idea, right? and it makes some degree of sense. It's a very, very small step from that assumption to saying that all economic activity represents increasing happiness, because otherwise people wouldn't be involved in economic exchanges. They do it for self-interested reasons to do with their well-being and their own happiness. So we can move very quickly from there, and we have as a society, towards the idea that economic growth is a necessary good. It involves people freely engaging in exchanges for mutual benefits. And as his ideas have been simplified and purified over decades and centuries, we sort of by default ended up with this understanding or this belief that markets and economic growth are our sort of ultimate aim. If we want happiness, we have to expand the economy. If we expand the economy, we all get better off. Therefore, our primary virtue sort of becomes economy and economic activity. And if you watch politicians, particularly around election times, you can see that this is the primary value that they tend to advertise, saying, we will be great for the economy, we will create jobs, etc., etc. Um, how the economy is doing is on the news every night. It's sort of a measure of our health as a society, in a sense. We don't see what are the depression rates in New Zealand today. Is depression up compared with last week or down compared with last year? We don't measure those things directly because we assume as long as the economic indices are measurable, we've got a handle on those more fundamental human motivations. But it's obviously simplistic 
to assume that all activity in the market represents human progress and that we are getting better off as a result of it. If you have, for example, a society that becomes significantly more anxious and depressed, drug sales are going to take off. As those drug sales take off, they're recorded as economic activity. So we can easily say, oh, look, the economy's taking off. If we don't look underneath the surface to say, what exactly is the nature of this exchange? Every car crash is excellent for the economy. A pile-up on the motorway is fantastic economic news. All of those cars have to be either taken to the panel beater or they have to be replaced. That's great for the economy. It's employing more people. If more people are injured, and particularly severely injured, and need care over decades, that's great for the economy. But it doesn't mean we're better off. Every major oil spill boosts economic activity. But for us to believe naively that all economic activity and economic growth represents progress is just downright stupid as a notion. But we kind of by default have fallen into that um, in an undiscerning way. Now, it's true within those scenarios, even if you think of a society getting more depressed, that when people exchange money for um, antidepressives, for instance, that they are individually probably going to be better off. They will feel better off. But socially, it doesn't mean we're heading in the right direction. So we have to be a lot more discerning around what economy actually is and realize that measures like GNP are not measures of our social well-being and, in fact, were never intended to be that. The founders of um, these, these measures, and particularly GNP, um, Simon Kuznets, absolutely warned that government should not use it as a measure of social progress or as a primary value, but we sort of moved in that direction. And one of the deepest problems we've got at the moment is um, understanding what happiness means. Because we can naively assume that all exchange in the market increases happiness, that the more of it there is, the happier we are. But the definition of happiness within that is very unclear and, again, very simplistic. In markets, we are left to ourselves in terms of deciding what will make us happy, and that's one of the great benefits of markets. It allows us to be free and to express ourselves and to become what we think we want to be. But often that happiness is very superficial and fleeting and, in fact, self-destructive happiness. If you look at people who are highly materialistic, people who like to accumulate lots of things and the latest things and define themselves by what they actually possess, you find that those folks have got quite significant difficulties in the primary areas of life that we know provide genuine satisfaction. So, for example, highly materialistic people have got poor quality relationships, typically. They tend to use people. They will hang out with you as long as you are highly fashionable and everybody around is impressed by you. And to go out with this person makes you look good. 
But as soon as this person has some sort of difficulty or trauma, what happens is they're rejected and people move away from them. And so they're not deep-set, stable relationships. And it's those stable relationships that have got an incredibly strong relationship to genuine happiness. One of the strongest indicators of deep happiness is the quality of your social relationships. Knowing that you can be around people, friends and family, that you can be vulnerable, for example, in front of them, that you can confess your weaknesses and not be rejected. Those things are really important for our genuine deep-set happiness. So economics on the surface, and in most people's minds, is something that creates great well-being. And I don't mean to dismiss it entirely. Of course it does. It's an underpinning for our well-being. But it is far from the be-all and end-all, and in fact, in increasingly, it's being seen as being something that holds us back from genuine thriving. Okay, that's economics in a, in a quick sort of sweep. Let me put that over there. Happiness and what happiness actually means. We know that in modern market societies, we can seek happiness, but we also know that that happiness generally wears off really quickly. Think of a car, for example. You can get a really flash car, and you think, this is going to change my life. But then you find yourself on the clogged artery of the southern motorway, going to the same old job with the kids arguing in the back, and life's the same. And what you think the material boost is going to be evaporates. When I was working in Bhutan, where I worked for over a decade, on and off with the government there, working on um, policies around their alternative to gross national product, which is gross national happiness. They're not particularly interested in economics as an end, but only as a means to happiness. Now, we kind of have that as an assumption, too. We think the economy is important because it produces ultimately happiness for us, but we don't analyze it to any depth. The Bhutanese, being heavily Buddhist, do contemplate and reflect upon these things a lot more than we do. And happiness is a much more nuanced concept in Bhutan. One of the ways Mahayana Buddhism deals with happiness is to break it into two sort of different classes, if you like. The first class is Dukkha, which is D-U-K-K-H-A. And dukkha is a form of happiness, but it's a deceptive and troublesome form of happiness. It's a form of happiness which is temporary and superficial and always prone to turning into its opposites. Um, in Buddhism, it's known as a, a grasping happiness, where you cling on to something and try and control it. And dukkha, as a superficial and lesser form of happiness, um, is <coughs> primarily oriented towards the external world and things in the external world. And this is why it is so problematic. If you get your new phone, for example, the Samsung Galaxy 25, it's fantastic, you like it, eh? and you're dependent upon it, it's got nice soft edges and a golden kind of hue when you hold it in the light the right way. And it's brilliant because it shows that you're a person with style at the cutting edge of fashion. Until the Samsung 26 comes out, 
and then suddenly this turns from being an excellent thing into being a terrible thing, a source of shame. And you have got no control over Samsung's policies and their built-in obsolescence and so on and so forth. That is beyond your control, so your happiness is not under your control. Dukkha, as a superficial, externally derived form of happiness, to the Bhutanese is what free markets are. They sell as constantly things that create a short-term, superficial happiness. And we get caught in an endless treadmill as a result. The death of economics is when we become truly happy, because then we stop buying. We go, life is great, just as it is. The way you keep an economy going is by keeping people dissatisfied and unhappy, so that people, as they're watching television or whatever, go, oh man, I want that, because my life is inadequate as it is. That's how we hook people into buying things endlessly. So dukkha, from a Buddhist perspective, is a, a trap right? and a deeply dissatisfying one. The better class of happiness in Buddhism is called sukha. And sukha is a permanent, deep sense of fulfillment and joy. Sukha is primarily non-materialistic in the sense that it is based upon our internal ability to find satisfaction. And satisfaction through, for example, finding a meaningful life, good quality social relationships, appreciation and connection with the beauty of a natural world. Those things don't take money. Well, they don't take much money. You can enjoy those without having to participate in a major way in the economy. They are generally freely available goods if you are skillful enough to know how to approach them. And Buddhism as a philosophy, as a practical philosophy, is really about how we improve ourselves and move away from a miserable state of false and fleeting happiness and attain a deep and genuine and permanent happiness in life. And the sort of Buddhist methods of practice are all about practicing behaviors such as generosity, for example. The Buddhist idea of um, sukha is really the foundational notion of gross national happiness in Bhutan. And when the king um, announced in 1972 that gross national happiness would be Bhutan's national um, agenda, um, he did so by saying the West and the developed world has got it all wrong, um, because they were kind of observing from a closed Himalayan kingdom. Basically, you couldn't get access into Bhutan until quite recently. Um, and their argument was, the king's argument was that we make a fundamental mistake. And that fundamental mistake is that we think economics is an end. And the Bhutanese argue that's madness. That's a form of literal madness. Um, the end can never be economy. Economy is a means to something. So if economy is a means to happiness, then it needs to be subjected to higher values that contain it. Once you reach that point, you're back to Adam Smith, because that was Adam Smith's argument. Liberate a market a little bit, but keep it under the control of a democratic government that represents the morality of the people. 
was Adam Smith's sort of overall argument. For us, we kind of ignore and miss the wisdom of that. And to quickly flip into climate change, the connection is pretty obvious. If we have a dominant value <coughs> that puts economy and economic growth at the apex of our value systems, and so it's right up there, the primary priority we have, the consequence of that is that we are willing to sacrifice everything for that highest value. Look at Bolsonaro's Brazil and the fires that are happening in the Amazon right now, for example. Bolsonaro's policy as a right-wing politician is to free up the markets. He's been very explicit about it. The Amazon is open to business, he was saying until very recently. As you do that, you take the lungs of the planet and you put business and the economic growth ahead of a sustainable future. And looking at the state of the world at the moment, that's what we're doing. We are sacrificing these incredibly important values and outcomes to this abstract um, and simplistic notion of economic growth being our mode of deliverance, when it can never be our mode of deliverance. Our mode of deliverance is within ourselves and lies in our ability to mature beyond superficial grasping for shiny things, which is how we tend to operate as consumers. I'm not suggesting we become like Buddhist monks, but Buddhist monks are actually pretty amazing in terms of the possessions they have. When they take their vows, they've kind of got a bed, a blanket, a bowl, and a couple of changes of clothes, and that's it. And in terms of people I've been around who are extremely happy, they're kind of off the scale. So there are lessons for us in that. But there are also lessons in understanding our Western empirical science around it. Because if you look at um, how countries get wealthy and as they grow their economies, over time, we are not getting happier, even although our economies are growing massively. So there are many developed countries that are now consuming six, seven times as much resources as we were in the 1950s and 60s. We've been keeping good data on happiness, often from census data, on almost every developed country since that time. So we have excellent data that shows us that happiness does not increase with that increased consumption of resources, meaning that essentially we've had about five decades worth of squandering massive amounts of resources for no effective outcome in terms of our happiness and well-being. So we need to understand that, and we need to move beyond it, and we need to move beyond it pretty damn fast. How we're going to do that, boy, oh boy, is there going to be a struggle in terms of undoing that. But there have been big initiatives. Um, when I finished working in Bhutan, or in the middle of my time working in Bhutan, we were working with Ban Ki-moon in the UN, uh, and uh, under um, Ban Ki-moon's insistence, because he wanted to leave office having brought in an alternative new economic framework globally, which moved us beyond the kind of fatal suicidal overconsumption which we seem hell-bent on in a market economy. Unfortunately, as that was beginning to take off, 
and major Nobel Prize-winning economists like Joseph Stiglitz and Amartya Sen were getting governments behind this notion, governments like the UK government and the French government, who were saying, yes, we will move in this direction. The global financial crisis hit. The global financial crisis hit basically because it's an over overly liberated market left to its own devices, not controlled by decent values. And when that hit, the political response was very telling because the political response was saying, yes, we need a different system. Oh my God, this system's on fire. Okay, everybody over here, we're going to fix the economy, maintaining business as usual and making sure that it keeps going. I think for most of us who were closely involved in that, our kind of feeling was that that would take it off the table probably for a decade, um, a decade plus. Um, but we're now, I think, with this climate situation, really beginning to face up to the, uh, to the issue and the question of whether this can go on. And increasing numbers of people, particularly young people, are getting to the point of going, this cannot continue. Right? Because we're not talking about grandkids anymore, we're talking about our kids and our kids facing major disruption. Where I live in the Coromandel, that storm that took out our road for so many months is not dissociated from climate change, and all predictions are that's going to happen again and again and again and again, and it's going to get worse and worse. When I drive my son and his friends, I was driving them up the coast the other day, and they um, spontaneously talking 15, 16 year olds and said, wow, it's going to be so strange to come back um, when we're grown up and see our school underwater right? because the Tapuru school is on the beach right? and you have big storm surges. It's already sort of intruded quite very, very close to the school. So for young people, I think it's gaining an urgency. Right? And it's up to us to be responsible enough to go, maybe this economic model needs to be teased apart, understood, and the core part of it that's problematic, rejected. Because economy cannot be our primary value. Because if it is, we will sacrifice the world for it in absolute vain. So on that happy note, I'll shut up and get off my soapbox.